לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Joining me are my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salman Shekhi Day School of Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, Leon Shein Chesed, in New York City. Great to see you, Barry. A little under the weather here. A little, little, it's not COVID. It's a little cold. Refuah <coughs> Shlema, okay? Thank you very much. Okay. Before we begin, just a word. Thank you all the people that are watching and listening to us and writing into us. We are we are thrilled every time we get a little note. We get a little. It's it's so delightful to hear from everyone, and we know that we are making everybody's parsha life better. We know that by the by the the jewels of Torah that we have here, that we are enhancing your appreciation of the parsha and Shabbat. And we know, look, we know that we've become an indispensable part of people's lives. Is that not true, Rabbi Kamalowski? And all all I can say is, you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Kabrama. Thank you, Kabrama. The Mitch, always, Mitch Mernick, big shout out. Thank you for always putting us on the call, Rama. And one of these days, I think the Kabrama newsletter might put a link to us. We'll see. We'll see. And many of you can help us by just sharing this, saying this is the, the greatest Parsha talk in the history of Parsha. Yeah, used to be in Dutchess County. We're now we, Once the Dutchess County's leading Torah podcast, now the world. The world. <laughs> In our own mind, at least. Parshat Chayesara. Chayesara, this is... I, you know what? We shouldn't say it's our favorite, one of our favorite. I like this Parsha a lot. I love this Parsha. I love this Parsha because it's it's got this great little novella, short story in it. And it it's it's really um, a transitional Parsha. Really, we, we get the, the sense, uh, certainly by the end of the Parsha, with the, the genealogies that are going on and... and what happens in the at the end of Avram's life, but be, we're getting ahead of ourselves. This parsha begins with the death of Sarah, Sarah Imenu. She passes away, and of course, the rabbis connect the akeda to the death of Sarah, which is a bit of a stretch, in my opinion. Right, that would make Isaac thirty-seven years old at the akeda. It's a little, a little much. Uh, She's 127 years old when she dies. She dies in Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron. So this presents us with the first the first problem, which is Avram is in Beersheba, she's in Hebron. Discuss. <laughs> well, What's the the um, the sort of natural reading, which which you know you're free to you're free to. When you look granularly and see that she's 127, he was 90 when he was born, then obviously he'd be 137. That's not very smooth or logical. But um, the narrative oomph of this is that it goes immediately from, the Torah goes immediately from the death, the, the near-death experience, or perhaps the death and resurrection experience of Isaac, and then it says immediately she died. So the Midrash is, 
um, that when she hears about it, Satan comes to tell her, do you know what your crazy old husband has just done? And she has a heart attack and basically dies out of shock and grief. And so, so the, the two partiot are connected. Now, I was pointing out before we talked, last, last week we talked about uh, the, the multiple readings, the, the, the quote-unquote uh, happier ending, I guess they're both happy endings, of the Akedah being that God or the angel saves Isaac at the last minute, no blood is shed, versus the one that is uh, that Isaac is perhaps the kind of between the lines or esoteric reading that Isaac is killed and resurrected. The Haftarah for last week, the story of the Shunammite woman, is a story about a woman, barren woman, waits for a long-awaited child. She prays for a child. Elisha, the prophet, says, he, using the exact same words as in Breshit, um, I will be back to you the, for a gestation period, and you're going to have a baby. And she has the baby, and she's very happy, and then the baby gets sick and dies. And Alicia resurrects the baby, um, and the woman is now she's you know delirious, and she gets to hold her, her beloved child again. That's a very very close match for the narrative of of the Akedah into Sarah's death. You know, woman waits for child, long awaited child, long expected child. She prays, she prays, she gets her wish, and then the child is robbed from her in the in in the story of Elisha. It's kind of a more immediate happy ending in the story of Sarai. If we, if we map the two stories together, it's not such a fast happy ending. I, I, I don't have a problem with that in the sense that that it's the these stories are playing with common motifs, and and you know certainly death and resurrection is a motif uh, that that is picked up by another religion, I guess. Um, but 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 we we can certainly you see- mean Chabad. <laughs> yeah, <really. laughs> uh, but but um, the fa- you know death of the child, death of the young child, terror of that, sacrifice of the child. These are also important motifs, right? And, but, but and that, that that that's you know okay, I got it. Yeah. What's interesting though, Elliot, is you spoke of the death of a young child, which undermines this mihut parshiot because. Indeed. The smichut parshiot changes actually. Explain what you mean by smichut parshiot for a second. When two passages come close together, they help us understand each other. It's because right after the akedah, the binding of Isaac, Sarah dies. The rabbis made the connection that one event followed the other, but it also changes the way that the rabbis understood the akedah, and I think that's an important point because if Isaac is thirty-seven, he's really the hero, not Abraham. Right. Because if she's 127, then he's 37. So, so that's why right, I have right. difficulty accepting. Better said than I did. I have difficulty. But, Go ahead. But I just wanted to add. So, you know, it, it struck me for a long time that we call it Akedat Yitzchak, but it really should be called Nisayon Abraham, the test of Abraham, which is the Torah's term. All right. Well, and it's only because the rabbis think that submission is better than destruction that they shift the emphasis to Isaac and take it off of Father Abraham. Uh, no, I, I I, think, I mean, we're going to rehash last week, I, I think that the main moment of the story is when he binds him. That's the superfluous moment. Therefore, it's that's what, what the title calls your attention to, the binding of Isaac. That didn't have to happen. Um, and I can't accept, you know, at least in my imagination, it's very hard for me to to see him as a 37-year-old man. Geez, it wasn't too long ago that we were all 37, eh? Okay? So, Who remembers? <laughs> you know, look, I, 
No, in the story, he's a boy. He's yeah. not had his bar mitzvah. You know, it's it's he's what seven, eight, ten. Who knows? But he's certainly not thirty-seven. I and and the rabbis conveniently juxtapose the stories and make that that um, midrash that she was she died upon hearing it because what's the alternative? The alternative is that if he was six or seven, so he would have. He would have lived 30 more years before she died, and she would have lived 30 years knowing that her husband had traumatized him this way. And that I think that the rabbis do this out of Rahmanas for, for Sarah. They don't want her to suffer. And 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 I, it's a very charitable reading of the of the Midrash. The rabbis say it. They they have a lot of compassion I mean, for her. They don't want her to suffer, and they and she she suffered enough. So they don't want her to suffer, so they kill her off. <laughs> I mean, where's the chachma in that? <laughs> no, they, the, the chachma is you. She, they don't want her to live with the pain that it, the terrible pain of knowing that her husband, you know, nearly did this. You know, and and, and the, the uh, and that's the midrash. And the, the pshat though makes a lot more sense. The pshat me what makes sense upon reading it is that they're separated. They're separated. He's in Beersheba. She's in Hebron. Why? The reason is because she can't live with him. And I would add, he can't live with her. No, the, this this part I think is is um, is is quite strong. Okay, um, that the pshat and and you could square this circle. I mean, you could, it's midrash. It's it's in the category of davar acher. You can tell multiple stories, and they don't all have to coalesce so so cleanly. You you can say that the tremendous shock and awe, and that's why she died, and and this michut parshiot, the, the juxtaposition, does have its own midrashic or narrative power. But I agree with you that the that the emotional literary power is that at the end of that Akedah story in twenty two, Abraham goes to Beersheba. Immediately, the very next thing we hear is that he has to lavo lispod l'sarav kota. He has to come to her funeral because why well, he's living in Florida, you know. <laughs> they're, they're, but I want to pick up on that. And so, Isaac, Isaac and Abraham don't speak to each other again. Yes. Sarah and Abraham don't speak to each other again. Yes. And so you're, you're left with the the kind of gap in your heart at the end of that story. Okay. But yeah. I I just want to pick up on it, on one thing here though. So you know we use the word lispod becomes hespade the eulogy. So think for a moment, what would Avraham actually say about Sarah at her funeral? So it's interesting. I, I, it's a, there is no funerary rite here. There's, you know, what what is he doing that is any in any way recognizable? The only thing I think is that he buries but He's her. crying. He's crying. What does that even mean? Because he is so sober in the next scene, he does a very rigorous negotiation. The guy has all his marbles. He hasn't lost a single... Beat. I think that servant has his marbles. Who's <laughs> 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 marbles? What I didn't hear. <laughs> he, he negotiates like a dawn. With Ephron the Hittite, okay, and he gets what he wants, and and this is not a man who is really suffering terribly. I think you have to explain that though. When you say that he gets because 
the modern commentators mention that 400 shekels is an extraordinary amount of money to pay for anything. Right. And he, he doesn't he doesn't bat an eye. He, right? Ephron says 400 shekels, and, and he doesn't negotiate. Well, Ephron says, says, Ephron says you can have it for free because who needs 400 shekels? Right. And Abraham says, no, 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 I have to own this myself. I have to pay because my Because he wants incontrovertible title to the land. And and he wants it to be so, so clear beyond anybody's question that he will do it. And he, and he does this in front of everybody. It's it's such a brilliantly narrated story. It it has so many time. different... Yeah. It, this, it has, this is the second time in which we see the same basic motif of Abraham with when he fights the four kings against the five kings. And the king of Sodom says, let me let me pay you for all your tremendous effort. He says, I won't even take a, a shoestring from you. Exactly. Uh, so that you don't say, uh, uh, Abraham. You, so you nobody says, you know, you know why Abraham is so successful and wealthy? Well, the king of Sodom gave him a break or exactly. gave him a break. He, this is like kind of uh, maybe a little bit of excessive, maybe a teeny bit of macho, like, I'm going to do this myself, and if I can't do it myself, I don't want you. You can keep your you and your you, you and your stupid help can go. You know, leave me alone. No, and and so he's he's in total control of his faculties. He's in total control of the situation. He gets exactly what he wants, and he establishes incontrovertible title to that little piece of land, which admittedly is a little is is you know, a, it's a small piece of land, but it's his piece of land. Right? It's a hole it's, in the ground. It's a hole. It's a yeah, a, a cavern. But it's worth thinking about. There's only one other person among the original families, the patriarchal families, that is actually buried where they died, and that's Rachel, because all the others are going to be brought back to. I'll be brought back. Okay. Well, with this, that, this is super. This is super important. Yes. Um, super important, and the fact that Rachel is the of the. Uh, uh, well, certainly compared to Leah, I mean, she's less she's a less fruitful mother. She has fewer children, but she has really important children, Yosef and Benjamin. But she she is kind of left outside. And that Keva Rachel, uh, the midrash will have the reason that she's buried on the road is so that as the children are led into exile, they have to walk past her keber and she cries. And that's why people care about it so much today. As anybody who's been there now knows that it is literally Keva Rachel is literally tucked into a bend in the separation fence. Separation fence is built literally just around the grave of, right. of Rachel. But the grave of Machpelah, where we have Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca and Jacob and Leah, and by Midrashic tradition, the Bible doesn't say this, also Adam and Eve, uh, they're buried in, in this cave. Uh, this is super important. The 400 shekel kesef, the 400 uh, silver pieces, just for point of comparison, David buys from Ornan HaYibusi, the the threshing floor which will become the Beit Hamikdash for fifty shekels. So if you have if you're if you're reading the Bible as a kind of a, a unified in, within a unified frame, one of the things that is being said, not that I'm saying that those two texts necessarily are speaking to each other, but if you read it within a unified frame, you could draw the conclusion that you know the Beit Hamikdash is really important. The family and the ancestors. Are are you know roughly eight times more important? Absolutely, and, and you know what? I mean, we we do you know Judaism. I think picks up from this. We we uh, revere our ancestral burial places. I think to to us to us 
to a certain extent that that is quite quite powerful. I love I love what Barry asked. What does Abraham say in his hesped? Uh, I'm probably going to to steal your question for Saturday morning. I hadn't thought about this because it, it's such a complicated. Well, you, so you you and I write eulogies. What would you what would you what would you put in his mouth? <laughs> you know, I'll just make the the parenthetical observation that I don't know if things have always changed. I think from my 21 years in the pulpit, it used to be the case that sometimes the children would speak and at a funeral and almost never the spouse would speak. Yeah. Now the children speak almost every time. Yes. And the spouses also speak sometimes. Well, I have um, a whole a whole the whole thing about this, which is yeah. it's it has to do with with you know the change the changing relationship to to the rabbinate it has to do with narcissism it has to do with lots and lots of things for people who are watching this and you're you and and, and you know i certainly encourage people to 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 eulogize their loved ones but make sure you don't talk about yourself <laughs> it's it, that's just the, the the short way of saying make sure you focus on the loved ones and so you know it's it's hard not to read that verse lispod lisara so if, if, in fact, he is saying something about her, what would he be saying about her? And, and the most charitable thing would be, and here I'll, I'll offer this, look, you put up with me. <laughs> you put up with me for all this He time. would say I, that... I uprooted you. I took you out of, out of your, you know, I took you on this journey, and it was not easy. And you, and, and you the greatest thing about you was that, you went, and that's amazing. I, I get, would add I, one other. I get thing. emotional just saying it now. <laughs> he would say with a rueful smile that she had a wonderful laugh. Okay. Oh, uh, nicely done. Nice. Nicely done. That's just brilliant. Um, you know, Abraham. I, I think as Elliot kind of alluded to, Abraham betrayed her in multiple ways. There's the wife sister aspect, and and the. While she, the Bible is very clear that that when the wife sister ruse happens the second time in the Philistines with Abimelech, God protects her. But I think it's pretty clear that that God does not protect her from Pharaoh, so she suffers a kind of degradation in the first time. Um, she does go with this guy traipsing from presumably a kind of Mesopotamian wealth to a to a Palestinian, you know, frightening journey that's not not so great. Um, and she, but let's also say, I mean, I think that there's Abraham betrays her, but she, Sarah also does one of the things that is like the uh, the most uh, like appalling in the Genesis narratives is that in her jealousy about Yishmael, she's willing to send Hagar. I mean, she she uh, she feels very competitive with Hagar the first time when Hagar just becomes pregnant and and Hagar gets a little haughty and Sarah abuses her, but. Okay, the angel sends Hagar back. They try again. She has the baby. She's lived with Yishmael for 13 years. He's her stepson. And then when she gets jealous on Isaac's behalf, she sends Hagar and Yishmael into the desert with the full expectation that they're going to die. Um, so Sarah's got a tough edge on herself, too. She's not... She's not. Uh... So here I would I agree with you totally. But the, the, it, to, the positive frame I would put on this is that she understood something that in retrospect, makes total sense, which is, she says, this this boy can't inherit what my son is going to have. 
And, and by severing the parental relationship between Abraham and Ishmael, she sets aside the possibility of a sibling fight later on and, and makes it abundantly clear that everything has to go through Isaac. And, and for that, you know, I think, look, that's, 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 that's the, the people in a nutshell. The pe- she understands that the covenant has to go through him. Case, end of story. Except for one thing. And that is, you know, I mentioned before the show that the place, the Erla Chairoi, this well of, yeah, uh, okay. is associated with Hagar in the earlier part of the Torah. And here it's associated with Yitzchak. So it would seem that one can make the argument that Hagar becomes the mother figure for Isaac. Absolutely. There, there's there's still a residual affection, certainly between Isaac and Ishmael. But it also may be a reflection on the way Isaac looks at Sarah. And the way Isaac relates to Abraham, okay. So, so you know, I mean, if you were, if you were, that's that's, I I love that because the we're just imagining here. I mean, the Bible, the the Bible's narrative, especially in Brishi, the Bible's narratives are as spare as can be. That's their literary power. They they say a minimum, they tell you a minimum of detail and give you a maximum of space to fill in. But we're imagining right now that the young Isaac uh, loved his big brother. And had a happy home, and she and Sarah diminished it. And if you were a kid, um, and you, of course you just, but as a child, you're just always going to identify with your parents. But then you discover that your parent maybe has done something violent. Like, how do you deal with that? Maybe Isaac has to deal with my mother tried to kill my half brother, and <laughs> uh, and I, you know, and I'm bereft. Of course, at the end of this parsha, Abraham will also die, and after after you know. Because we are also telling the story, again, this is an imaginative story, it's not a detail in the Bible, that the children of Yishmael and the children of Yitzchak, the Jews and the Arabs, we want there to be a different kind of reconciliation. We, It just calls to us that at the end of the parasha, for all of the bad stuff that has gone down, Yishmael and Yitzchak come together to bury Abraham, which is just beautiful. Like, how do they do that? Uh, you know, oh, remember that time my mom drove you into the desert? Let's not talk about that now. <laughs> I, I, you remember Sam Claxburn? Uh, sure. So he had a he had a lecture called uh, "Abram on the Altar, Isaac on the Couch." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know that that to 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 do the analysis or you know what what's going on here. I mean, we can fast forward to the end of the the parsha where where he, he marries Rebecca and it says you know he loved her. Uh, um, and uh, it's at the end of chapter twenty-four. At the end of chapter twenty-four, it says as follows: the last verse, Isaac takes her into the tent of his mother. He takes her. She becomes his wife. He loves her. He is comforted. After his mother. And and there is the whole, you know, that's the whole right, and story that will be picked up later yeah. in the phrase that love is stronger than death. Indeed. Okay. So so having established that that all the relationships are tangled here and there's tension here, if we go to the story that dominates this parsha, which is the story of finding the wife for Isaac, um, I want to say so. Read the first verse with me and tell me what you think. Abraham was old, 
advanced in days and years, and God blessed him with everything. So I want to say, no, sorry, how could you say that? God, you know, his wife is, has passed away. He's a hundred and something years old. He's got his tent. He's got his people. He's got his flocks. He's got lots of material wealth. But he doesn't, and he's got a beautiful reputation. People love him. But he has no, he has no continuity. You can't say he's blessed with everything. He's got, I don't want to say he's got nothing, but, but he's got no future. At this moment, he's got he's got a son that he doesn't talk to, Isaac. He's got a son that's estranged from him, Ishmael. He's got a wife who's gone. He's got a concubine who's gone. What has he got? He has a servant. He has a faithful servant. Exactly. So so what so what's the the purpose of of saying that he's blessed? I, I think that you know pastorally we would say that even after death one can feel blessed and that's an important thing to remember when we try to reconstruct our lives after the loss of a loved one because the initial reaction is there i will never smile again you know laughter is gone i look i think it functions on a literary basis like a, like a like a folktale which is once upon a time everything was great except there's a problem here and so i think it's setting up the tension with this this real problem, this vacuum in his life, and then that's exactly what he what he goes and, and he he turns the in the very next verse he turns to his servant and he says, "Sim <laughs> place your hand under my." Which thigh. is in literary English, grab custom you can get. Place your hand under my thigh. We're going to make a deal here, okay? And 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 he says, "Go back. Why?" Why can't why can't Isaac marry a Canaanite? Why can't well, you know what I have to go back there for? And and what's the deal here? And 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 so help me out. Among the things among the things I would observe about this, which I this this you know I, I can do this in a number of uh, things, but you know we we sort of know this as a fact. Oh, the Bible is a polygamous society, and we know that Jacob had you know two wives and two concubines, and Abraham had a wife and a concubine. You know this fact, we say it's a polygamous society, but there's, and David had a bunch of wives, and Solomon had a bunch of wives, um, and Solomon and, and and David's children are identified by the mother of the children. Some of, some of the king narratives uh, in those obviously polygamous contexts are identified by the, the, the mother of, you know, so-and-so was the king, he was the child of so-and-so, the woman. Um, but almost all the stories, almost all the important stories assume monogamy. They assume at a bare minimum one main wife and you might um you you might assume that there are also some concubines around maybe you have a child with with maybe the man has a child with another woman but it's incredibly important in these stories because there is effectively one wife everybody has one wife it, at the end of the previous parsha by the way with the with the birth of rivka we hear that milka has born to nahor eight children we don't hear Nahor had like, you know, six concubines and they, each of them had a child or two. No, Milcah gave him eight children. And it's very important clearly in the story of Abraham and his childless years that Sarah has to be the one to give him the child. And so just dialing down a little bit, dial, you know, dialing more closely to why does he have to go back? 
it's such a polygamous society. Yitzhak's a rich guy. He's got a wealthy father. I'm sure we can find, we'll find a couple of Canaanites here, and then we'll find some Girgashites, and it's all going to be fine. Not okay. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that there's going to be a main wife, and the main wife has to be part, part of our clan, because Rifka is also going to be Abraham's great, great niece. It points to an existential crisis in Abraham. Because the question is, who am I? And what am I to become? And he's been living in the land now for 62 years, if we you know go from 75 to 137. And he doesn't quite belong to the land, even though God has promised it to him. And he has to be able to produce, which he did, admittedly not in great numbers, but he has to be able to produce again for the next generation. And he he's not quite part of the land yet. His family is not quite part of the land. So here I want to I suggest to you that what he's doing here is he's trying to imprint onto Isaac the same pattern that was that, that he lived with in, which is I took a wife from there. I brought basically, you know, we, we, we understand Sarah to be a kind of relative of his. And, and he's saying, just like I took a relative as a wife, my son is going to take a relative as a wife because I was supposed to produce a nation and I only produced one, one son. So obviously in my lifetime, the nation thing is not happening. So it's got to go to the next generation. So if the next generation is going to be entrusted with, with founding the nation, then he's got to do it like I did it. And let's get a, let's get a woman from there and let's repeat the pattern. And and see if it happens, and and I'm going to move things because God doesn't do this as a you know like I in the sheet I'm writing for for my parsha sheet this week it's like you know we we've watched too much fiddler on the roof okay you know and sing the song from Muttal and Saitel you know wonder of wonder miracle miracle God has given you to me it's a miracle right that's the way it happens but doesn't <laughs> it only- so I want to. Go in a different direction. So the problem for Abraham is he's caught, he's a transitional figure, and he's caught between family and ethnicity. Okay. The nation is going to be an ethnic group. But he's still at the family stage. And that's why the family is so important. You know, we were talking before the show, you noted that Yaakov had 12 sons and they all married locals. Because there was a large enough number where they could assimilate. assimilate. But with one, you can't. Because if you marry the local, you become the local. I think I think that that's certainly you know at play here. There's there's a lot of pressure here, but I mean, there's so many vectors that are going into this decision. One of them is is certainly the the threat of assimilation, the threat of that culture. But the other is like, I want you to be like me, boy. So you know, we were talking earlier about the last chapter in Sefer Yehoshua, where reference is made to the God of Nahor. And, you know, it's striking that Abraham doesn't quite divorce himself from his brother's family. Right? The the Israelites have to, right? They have to choose between the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. But Abraham himself can't make that decision. So, so Jeremy, you just quoted, you quoted the the, the end of the chapter, chapter 22 at the end of the Akeda uh, from last week's Parsha, where you have this whole family of Nahor. And I think that that plays, you know, a, a very, very significant role because he 
hears this. Abraham finds out that his brother has gotten busy, okay? And his brother already has basically 12, eight, eight plus four. There's, there, there's a whole symbolic number there. And it's like, whoa, geez, my brother didn't say geez. <laughs> it would be too early for that. Moshe Rabbeinu. <laughs> my brother has 12 descendants. And what do I got? I got a son. I got one son that doesn't even call. Okay. And he, by the way, my brother lives in a big, very successful Mesopotamian city. That is, there's no comparison in terms of the apparent affluence. Although Abraham has done fine. At some level, the shot of Vadunai Berachet Abraham Bakol means, man, this guy's got a lot, a lot of sheep. He's got some serious number of okay, goats. Okay, so but he's but but again, it underscores what he's got and what he doesn't have. You know, another fiddler of now. I have everything. I have everything. No, I, you don't have everything. Sorry, you're missing. You're missing the one basic thing, which is a future. You don't have a future without without a married child. I mean, you know, we 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 observe that in in the reality of people's lives now. You know, and and that's uh, talk about you know pain. That's pain, right? To, you know, to, yeah. It's so striking, Elliot, the way you present this because Isaac brings Rivka into his mother's tent. Yes. And immediately after that has all been resolved, Abraham goes and finds a wife for himself. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Because what yeah. is he saying there? He's saying there, I've I'm done. I'm done with all these promises <laughs> that God is going to do this for me. I'm going to get up and do it on my own. And he's 140 years old. When he gets busy, and he and he populates half the Mediterranean, half of the <laughs> half the continent with his brother. I mean, it, because it's at that point that the promise of Av Hamon Goyim actually takes hold. And so, when I look back at Abraham's life, and of course, this parsha, you know, makes us look back at Abraham's life. It's a life that's filled with challenges, filled with devotion, filled with um, adherence to God, and filled with tremendous frustration. Tremendous pain, tremendous anguish, and the tremendous sense of I am going to make my own destiny. That's what he's doing here in the story. He's setting up is the servant Eliezer or whoever he is to to do that. Take matters into your own hand. Take the bull by the horns. Take your own destiny and make it happen. And and we don't have time, obviously, to read read through the whole story. But I think but you know you know the the uh, the, the 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 bit about the end. So Isaac gets. Rebecca and the destiny is now shifted to his story. That's fine. Abraham goes and he marries somebody else. Keturah. is married. Oh, is, is midrashically she's known to be Hagar, and he has all these other children. Uh, but like, to, if we could just transpose this into a, a modern story, it's like okay, Sarah dies, and and Abe, you know, moves to Florida. And he meets somebody else, and he's got a whole new family, and it's got to be massively awkward. Um, but then there's a great line in 25. Sure. He's got all these children. Zimran, Yokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, Shua, Yokshan, Jeva, Dedan, blah, 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 all these children. And it says, Veiten Abraham et kol asher lo yeah. And Abraham leaves everything he has to Isaac. But Abraham, to, all the, to the concubine family, he gives gifts. And this has just got to be uh, the <laughs> most, the, This on a human level, this is like incredibly complicated. I'm giving you, Yitzhak, you are my true destiny. I'm giving you everything. And you nice children, 
know that daddy would like you to have a bicycle. A you know, you get, a <laughs> you get a book. You get a book. You get a camel. Yeah, for your Maybe you do get a camel. You get a book. I give you a Talus. Give you a Kiddish <laughs> cup. <laughs> but right. but the, the the assignment of you know that Abraham gives at Koasher Loli Yitzchak, he gives everything he's got to Isaac. That's the real story. Unfortunately, like none of us would want to live in a world where our our most notable ancestors, you know, treat their biological but not emotional children so cavalierly. I think it's kind of yucky, um, to say the least. But but I do think that the point of the Torah is that the covenantal destiny, this is your real child. The other children are physically your children, but your real child is Yitzchak, and that's how the covenantal story is told. And the reason why Isaac is the real child is because Sarah is his is the real wife. mother. Is the real exactly mother. Exactly right. right. And the only wife. And the only, the only wife. true wife. So so despite what happens at the end of the Parsha, go back to the, the, the Hespe, the eulogy is, look, I I started my life with you. I made my life with you. It went in all sorts of directions, but that that changed des- changed changed all of humanity. Well, that and that's a big that's a big a big note to end on. But we got to end because we're at thirty six minutes and twenty two seconds here. <laughs> but in the meantime, share this with everybody. We want to. We want to make it up to 120 people already. We've got a lot of views. We've got a lot of views. They're all going to be listening to this. We're so glad you joined us. Thank you so much. Shabbat shalom, everybody. Shabbat shalom. Next week on another edition of Parsha Talk.